I'm your host, Mr. James, and you are listening to Right in the Schoolies. My next guest is an artist and sculptor. Her most recent bit of work was when she was commissioned to create a new on-screen ident for ITV as part of the prestigious ITV Creates project in 2019. She's also rather more well-known from my neck of the woods for creating the Water Deities back in 1997 in Sway, Hampshire. She's a fellow of the Royal Society of Sculptors, included as well in the 50 Women Sculptors film. And it's the first book to give overview of women sculptors in illustrious company alongside Elizabeth Frink, Rachel Whiteread, Sophie Ryder, Barbara Hepworth, Louis Bourgeois and many more. And in her own words, as a sculptor, I love working with the directness of clay, using all the techniques, coiling and slab building, making one-off pieces which are fired then finished with acrylic paint. Classical sculpture was always highly coloured, but we have this erroneous idea that they were all white and sterile looking. Having said that, my obsession is catching a very simple form or line, primarily, then enhancing it with colour. Sometimes I use juxtapositions of two forms that I hope suggest contradictions of strength and fragility, stability and precariousness, like the relationships between human beings, but also other opposites, such as rest and activity, that I hope give my work a lively presence and a sense of each one having an individual character. But really, all this is open to the eye of the beholder. I never want to be too prescriptive, and in saying this much, I've probably said too much. My guest today is none other than Patricia Volk. I must say, some some beautiful beams you've got there as well. I didn't see those the first time. I'm assuming we're in a different house to when I would have spoken to Stephen. I remember there being a lot of books. Steve's one floor down, I'm one floor up. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's the secret to a a long-lasting marriage. My wife's downstairs working. I'm in the box room with all the laundry, as you can see. And you see that beam there? That is less than the height of Steve. So Steve comes in too much. He can knock himself unconscious. <laughs> I didn't tell him. <laughs> I won't tell. Yeah. And he goes, ah! <laughs> so would you just paint the picture for us of the, the main details I want to know to start off is the name of your main school, and I use that phrase because some people went to uh, a sort of middle school, then a then a then a senior school. Others went to an, a through school. So your main school, the one that you spent most of your time at, or the one that you remember the most about, what was it called? What year did you join, and what year did you leave? I didn't spend an awful lot of time working. I think my time, my dates are sort of right. I can't don't really know exactly, um, but I come from Belfast originally. Uh, so I went to College Glen Primary School from about uh, 1956 to 1962, I think approximately. And then went to a girls' school, uh, girls' model school from about 1962 to 1968. So it was a long, long time ago, probably before you were born. <laughs> no comment. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> given, given the time period in Northern Ireland as well, um, I did were you affected in any way by some of the sort of goings on or was it was that just in the background I think it was always in the background the troubles in Northern Ireland didn't really start until 1969 and I left I think in April and it had really started full whack in August uh we were always fully aware um mm. that my best Again, that's sort of where I seem to always go wrong. I always seem to have uh, best friends with all the wrong people. Although I came from a Protestant area, all my best friends were Catholics, and I was always attracted by the Catholic imagery. You know, if I, if I could get a trip into the chapel, I'd go. Because, uh, um, yeah, I do remember a couple of times sort of people saying things to my mum that, oh, you shouldn't let her play with them lot. And my mum would say, oh, because my mother had no prejudice whatsoever. And uh, growing up, I mix with everybody, which I'm really glad and good privilege that I ha- I did do that. The area that we've often talk about in Belfast that's sort of it's famous for its murals and it's famous for its for its uh, for its artwork, uh, and and it's and it's and it's sort of you know it's even now still feels and I've not been, but from what I've read, from what I've heard, still feels very, very divided. And so for people who aren't from there, or even people who aren't from the British Isles, they, they would find that quite shocking, I think, that even now there's still that 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 clear divide between Protestants and Catholics. 
I think it all began as well through the schools. Like I say, I went to Cars Glen, whereas my friend would have went to uh, Holy Trinity or or the Lady of Perpetual Sucker, if I remember that, which I always thought was a funny name, which was the <laughs> secondary school they went to. So their schools were Catholic and the ones I went to were Protestant. And, and that, I think, I always thought that was totally wrong because that causes division right at the very beginning. You don't have children. Children have no prejudice whatsoever. They don't care who they play with. But if you started off young, it just it just becomes a norm. And as I say, my friends that were Catholic, they just happened to live around the corner. And I got on with them. It's got nothing to do with whether uh, they were Catholic or Protestant. It's a great pity. I think, sort of, again, people are talking about uh, schools of various denominations, and I, I don't think it's a good idea. Mainly because of what happened, happens, and I've seen happen in Northern Ireland. Schools should be multiracial, multi-religious. People should be mixing. Hmm. It's funny how many people already giving their interviews have talked about even the sort of religion with a with a small R that gets placed in some schools, the sort of Church of England schools, the um, yeah, yeah that the ones that might not even be technically denominational but do have like a sort of church group that works closely with the school and yeah I I do I do sort of feel that we sometimes get it a bit wrong over here I've always thought the French have got some things right in that they they very much want education and religion to be two totally separate things however that has brought its own fair share of problems in other ways I suppose it's it's very it's a very divisive issue I think we like even within the Protestant school there would be uh, Church of England, Church of Ireland, Presbyterian, mm. and Methodist and Baptist. So even within the Protestant lot, there's divisions, and we would have a different minister from each one of those churches would come in once a week and and, and tell us, that, and also we'd be divided up into those groups. I, I I think that like the Good Samaritan is a good story to tell. And there's lots of good religious stories that should be told to children. And I look back at, at them. There was always a, a, a religious sort of story told at the primary school. And I look back and think I learned from them because a good Samaritan is a good story. Mm. And there's other stories that are very good uh, of helping other people. Uh, and I dare say they're in all religions and those stories should be told. Yeah, especially especially to young impressionable people that want to learn yeah. a few life lessons. I suppose I still remember. I, I remember the story of the Good Samaritan because um, we had to do a oh god some sort of assembly <laughs> or something on it. And my mum still has a picture that she likes to wheel out every time uh, of of me dressed as one of the robbers that robbed the Good Samaritan. I, I was typecast from a young age uh, as a ruffian, <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> Yeah. But I do, I, I do, I do remember that that distinctly. And and again, you know that whether or not you choose to follow religion or not, it doesn't mean that the stories are invalid. It just no. means that you've got to figure out the what way to frame them, I suppose. Um, exactly. You know, now, do you remember anything about? Most people remember vividly a classroom or a building or any physical feature of that uh, of, of of this school. Uh, like in both schools, I can remember them really in quite a lot of detail. Uh, like in the primary school, all the, there'd be little desks with a, uh, an inkwell, which I sort of stick my finger in and pull up, or else <laughs> put your finger underneath and do wallop, wallop, wallop when the teacher was really getting you upset. Um, and the, they'd be all out that you might be stuck with someone, your best friend, hopefully, but invariably you, you'd have, you'd have it, these little exams or tests all the time so you'd be graded to begin with you were all put in alphabetical order mm. um so if you were Patricia Bird which I was she got at one particular seat and they happened to be unlucky enough to have a second name of Z you would be either at the front or back depending on what way the teacher liked it and then when the test started if you were really good you'd be and you came first to class or second you'd be at the top of the class or if you were at the bottom you'd be at the very bottom of the class so it's Mm. everything was arranged which I'm not sure is is a good way you, you do look down and think oh well I'm better than them because I'm at the top of the class and I'm better <laughs> than them because of whatever and that's divisions are not good mm. purely based mm. on the alphabet of course well no this was once you got the test oh, once all, you did the test I'm yes. sorry I, I missed when it when we came in to start with you were you were put 
as far as the alphabet was concerned. Right. I thought, I think it's probably now the way the teacher learnt your names. And then afterwards, you got the test each week and you would be arranged by the results you got on the test. Wow. Very, very public as well, I imagine. If you yes. felt like you were stuck somewhere at the at the back, you would be probably starting to question why, why, why your reward was to look at a bunch of people's backs of heads, I suppose. Um, I think if you were really bad, you were put at the front. So, ah. so if you did anything, the teacher would be on your back. Where she could sit at the back and be really pompous. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's it's funny, isn't it? The shorthand that comes with where people are sat. So these yeah. days, of course, seating plans really aren't supposed to have anything to do with ability. And yet, in in again in, in a pre-COVID world, when you could move people around any single time, quite often, you know, I I I know I would have the kid that's going to cause me the most grief sat right front and centre, so that yeah. I could spot them. Yeah. And and every now and again, you, you do things where I, I, I'd always place the kids that were going to cause me any trouble right near the middle of the room. And and the nicer kids, you try not to neglect, but then you go, well, I can I can trust them to sit there. And you think this is this is nuts. It shouldn't come down to this at all. Oh, well, I think I, I can understand that. I think that's all right. Do you allow them to sit beside their best friends, though? Oh, well, I think the first thing that you do is is you, you recognise who are the close friends who will actually work together. And and yeah. are, are quite good. I I hate to say it. Quite often, girls can manage to work and and chat and be okay and sort of pull off that thing. A lot of boys at that age have a brain but the size of a pea and so can't quite cope. I know I was like that. So it does it doesn't always work out. So I I try I try to be fair. If somebody annoys me, I I, I can move them. That's been the worst thing since September. They've yeah. come back in and we've had to stick to one seating plan, even if even if it's not working out. And you go. You know, pedagogy be damned. We're having to, we're having to seat them in a certain place. So if one of them goes down with COVID, only those kids have oh, to go God. out. It's, yeah. Oh gosh, that's dreadful. Did you um, did you remember anything in particular about the uniform that you had to wear? Any sort of rituals that you had to do? Any any things that you know you think of school and you think, oh yeah, when we went into assembly, we had to do this, or we tended to sing that song, or we or we had to say this when the teacher entered the room. Any of those sort of things. Well, uh, in secondary school, um, when anyone came into the room, and I think in primary school as well, we always had to stand up. If any, if, te- if a teacher came in, we had to, and and I think if at the beginning of lessons we used to, have to say, "Good morning, Mr. Miss." read or good morning it seems really peculiar we'd always have assembly each morning I think every morning and we'd all be standing in lines and I think that lasted about 15 minutes before we went to class so that's when we'd have our religious instruction and, and sing a song uh, or pretend to sing a song mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, and also in secondary school we did have a uh, uniform which was a pleated skirt and uh, blouses and a tie. And at that time, many skirts were in. So you'd find that the little pleated skirts would be folded up so many times around the waist that you'd have a waistband that would be about this big and the skirt would probably be that width or depth. <laughs> I mean, and, uh, it, yeah. the, the, the rolling up of skirts, it's just one of the, it's a great example of plus sachants really, isn't it? You know, it's, it, I think it's been going on forever since school it's uniforms have been in us. Oh, Hundred percent. I think what's different. What's what's different now, though, is um, I don't know if this happened, but you know, we hear stories of people going around with a ruler checking skirt length. Did that happen for yeah, you? We, yeah, yes, I can remember. I know it was all an all girls' school, and it was very strict about shoes. You always had to wear ankle socks and special shoes. Uh, yes, they were very strict about what what you had to, to wear. The uniform policy in a lot of secondary schools now is quite sort of it has to be a bit more accommodating and and one of the things that certainly as a male practitioner i personally refuse to do skirt length checks on on teenage <laughs> girls because if i'm honest that's not my field you know and, and I, I i think we live in a very we live in a very weird world these days where i just yeah. go you know what i'll pull up stuff about ties i'll talk to boys about the shirts being tucked in i'll even talk about earrings or nose studs in yeah. boys or girls, whatever, that's fine. But I'm not going anywhere near that conversation. <laughs> I, I I will have a female colleague who, who I'll say, please, I, I'd like you to have this conversation. Thank you. I yeah. think 
I think you're doing the right thing. Uh, <laughs> really do the right thing. There. I, yeah. I think I think unfortunately, a uniform is one of those really divisive issues. Lots of people say it's 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 wrong or it has um certainly in in this current age where we are thinking more about sort of gender norms and equalities and things like that, you know, which it should is it is it right? You know, I I do know in the past I've taught in schools where some students have decided that they 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 would like to transition from being the gender they were assigned at birth to a different gender and all that sort of stuff. And and uniform does sort of make that really obvious from a long way out. Yeah. But then if your mum has to buy you a pair of trousers and you've got a skirt or vice versa. If I was mum, I'd say, I think you ought to leave it until next year when we can afford a new skirt rather than now. Uh, so there's other things that come into the consideration. Also, boys wear, girls wear trousers. It's, it's easier, I suppose. And men wear kilts. Well, yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it, yeah. It's, it's just like anything, though. But I, I, f- I find that people always look back on what they had to wear as a school uniform with quite an interesting... Yeah, this is what they told us to wear, but we did break the rules on this and this. I think you want to assert yourself a little bit, assert your personalities, but I think uniforms are a good leveller as well. It means that the ones that might not be so well off can have a uniform and not be put up down by the ones that have got a lot of money to spend and clothes and, and the other ones just can't keep up with it. And I think I would have found that quite difficult whenever I was at school. Yeah, because uh, that, of course, is the argument that I will always come back to. As much as I don't like certain aspects of a uniform, I think it's, I think it's only fair in yeah. terms of people broadcasting their wealth. And kids still find ways to do it. Now, these days, it's all about what phone have you got and all these yeah. extra gadgets. But you know, flaunt, flaunting relative wealth over one another is is I think pretty. Um, it, it's it's an easy way to bully people by proxy, which I think is a bit a bit grubby, really. It's interesting competitiveness as well, isn't it? Mm. It, it must be born in uh, born in us to be competitive before we even know it. I think I think as well when it comes to people's appreciation for what things cost. Mm. I, I I know for a fact, and this is where I'm gonna I'm gonna run into the difficulty of sounding like I'm saying back in my day, which is a lot of rubbish. But <laughs> you know, um, I do remember having a part time job when I was when I was at school, and and it wasn't because my parents couldn't necessarily afford so because my parents said bloody well get out there and have some have something that you're going to do on the side don't let it interfere with your schoolwork but you know you need something to do and I'll I'll wash pots in in a kitchen in a pub and later I ran food and I I looked forward to Thursdays when I got my little wage packet and I could spend it on stuff and you ask kids now so any of you got a part-time job they just look at you like you're crazy like what no but it's only a part-time jobs that kids can have nowadays and things have changed so much, you know, uh, uh, especially now, at now particularly, there mm. is much kids can do to do that. And and a lot of them as well, their parents make the argument that, well, I don't want you focusing on something like that when you should be focusing on your studies. And again, that competitiveness has maybe gone in another direction. Yeah, it that's an, it's really interesting, actually. Mm. Yeah, I think as well, I, I was thinking about this interview and I was thinking back to the teachers like, for instance, I said Miss Reed, and I think at that particular time, women went into teaching but because there was nothing else for them to do. Um, there might have been a couple of male teachers, but then invariably be headmaster. Mm. Actually, there was a few in the primary school. Obviously, in the secondary school, there wasn't any teachers at all. The male teachers might have been in the grammar schools. Um, but a lot of people, I think, didn't actually, if I look back at some of my teachers, I don't think they really like being a teacher. Whereas I think now people go into teaching because they really genuinely want to be a good teacher. Well, on that subject, yeah. let's, let's, uh, let's, let's talk about some of your teachers. I have to say most of them through primary school, I dread at the lessons. There was very few I like. I am dyslectic. And at that particular time, I don't think it was recognised. And I think I was probably hyperactive and a pain in the ass. Uh, and I maybe I need a little bit more attention. My sister was very badly disabled, uh, so a lot of the te- or not really badly disabled. She'd, she'd had polio, right. so my, my my parents were having to go and to see see to her as well. And I think I might have needed the attention 
that I was missing at home by being obnoxious and and, and demanding the attention. Uh, like one particular teacher, uh, this is quite. I, I keep it keeps coming back to me, even though I was probably eleven at the time, or maybe ten, maybe even younger than that. And round the, our classroom, there was blackboards. There's the blackboard in front, and then blackboards at the side. At the side that would be the, the old folding she, ones, yeah. No, there were just stand, standing. Oh, separate. Kind of separate ones. Okay. And she started to, at the start of the composition. She started to write out someone's composition on the, these blackboards. And to begin with, I started to laugh because there was letters back to front and things badly spelt. And all the other people in the class started to laugh and giggle because obviously there were things someone stupid has done that. And I was doing the same thing as they were doing. And then the penny dropped that it was my composition. And she wrote my composition on all the blackboards in the class. And everybody in the class went through. And so every mistake I'd made in English, every word I'd done back to front. And every, and I, I remember the time I took it quite lightly, but I was quite, I really tried hard. And I still, on a Sunday night, have the palpitations of having to hand in the composition on Monday morning because I knew that no matter how hard I tried, I couldn't get it right. And there was one teacher, I think this went as far as secondary school, and uh, she did take a little bit of interest to find out what was wrong because I wasn't bad, like algebra, I was fantastic at algebra. It was unbelievable. I was like books ahead of the other people in the class, geometry, no problem at all, um, but just reading. And again, Enid Blyton, every time I hear the word, it just fills me full of horror. I sat on one Enid Blyton book the whole year. And I remember going up to, again, I thought, oh, God, this is another lesson. I'm sitting looking at this book. I can't take it in. And I look back at that. At, oh, anyway, there was one teacher that thought, there was something obviously wrong. And she I think she must have gone for advice because she brought me up and she said, I think your problem is that you're hyperactive and your brain works too quickly. So you're not able to get down the words that you want to get down whenever you're doing the composition, when you're able to write. And I thought I remember thinking, oh, pure, but maybe something will happen here and it'll, it'll be all right. But I remember she said, I'm going to find out more. And I went in and again, I spoke to the teacher about that and says, I'm afraid we, don't, we, we can't discuss that. We can't go on with that anymore. And that was it. That was the finish of it. Wow. So that was, so that was, sorry, you said this was secondary school mainly. Was this primary um, school as well? It came from primary school and it went on into secondary school. Wow. And it's funny as well because you mentioned the what, what was that program called? Was it the write-offs? It was on a few months ago, Sandy Toxvig, and it had ad, it had adults um, who some of whom you know were, were, were quite quite advanced in years and yeah. had never had any formal diagnosis of their dyslexia, but they, yeah. they 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 were at the really extreme end where they actually couldn't read a lot of things like general signs in the street or they would have trouble reading letters from the doctor or things like that and um i think the statistics were very very high that quite likely depending on your generation and where you went to school and the sort of what what provision was around at that time and a lot of the time the answer was diddly squat in terms of provision you could be operating on a literacy level that that would be debilitating and i found that as an english teacher especially i found that really shocking and really saddening and also i mean i'm terrible at maths hopeless i you know i I get i get nervous when i run out of fingers and toes but but i guess in a way i can mask it and hide it far easier because of having a smartphone having all those other things but the idea that you could be it, the, the idea that a teacher could mock you without maybe even realizing that's what they're doing but, but writing out your composition that's a lot of effort that that seems to me that's anathema it, it must i don't know what I, th- I think back on at night it must have taken an awful lot of effort for to write it all out you know, with chalk on, on it and yeah it's it's very weird like i think they probably thought that m- my mother probably noticed something was wrong before i even went to school because i think i went for a psychiatric uh, 
evaluation before I even started at school. Mm. Um, but they found out that I'd got a very high IQ, but they couldn't quite work out what what it was about. But again, coming back to English, uh, you know, when we'd read a book, they'd go around and each each student would read a sentence. Mm. And I knew that I would be trying to work out what my sentence would be. So I'd spent all my time working out how many people would be there before me and then working out how many sentences and just getting stressed up by counting how many divisions there was in the page till I got to my sentence that maybe then I could read it. But then if anybody got cut too short and forgot how long everybody had to speak or someone spoke too long, you'd be in real trouble. <laughs> I, I'm just, I mean, it, it makes it makes my heart sink to think that anybody could be made to feel that way or rather would be made to feel that way by, by a teacher, especially things like reading aloud. I mean, we, we do so much of it these days and we have to be very aware of, of what's going on. I've, I've got a few students who... Are, um, I, you very quickly realise who's your? They're, they're, they'll give it a red hot go. They're they game, yeah. but but they're not very good. But you allow them to have a crack at it because that's what they want to do. And then you have the ones who you think it'd be good for them if they had a go. Maybe it will help them longer term, especially as we move on to doing things like Shakespeare. And it is, yeah. you know, almost another language for some of them completely. Mm. But even then, I I know that I. I, I personally don't make them read if they don't want to. If I get to them and say, who wants to read? How about you? And they look at me with a look that says, please, earth, swallow me up, never to yeah. never see the, the light of day again. I say, maybe next time. And I move on. And, and uh, you know, you, you don't know. I know some teachers even now are, are like, no, no, you, you should force them. And you go, you can't force people to do that. What's the point? It's going to make them upset. I think one of the problems I had, really, as I sort of say with the evaluation of finding out that I had a high IQ, was that it was put down to laziness. Mm. And even whenever it was sort of looked at later on, they I say my my composition didn't just go to the teacher. When I got into secondary school, my composition went to the headmistress, and then each Wednesday I'd be called into the headmistress's office, and she would go through the composition with me. So because they thought I was lazy and not doing it, but I was trying. And then she'd have a ruler and anything that was wrong back to front, I'd get smacked for it. And that and, was their response? Yeah, because I was lazy. Mm-hmm. Because you see, I'd got no other right to no signs because I was good at the other things and I wasn't at the bottom of the class or anything like that. And um, But th- there's just there's one thing that wasn't working in the equation. And did you ever... Did you ever find out or or make peace with what, what that missing piece was? Did it did it naturally sort of even itself out a tiny bit, or did you just learn to live with it? I think I learned to live with it. And actually, I learned how to cheat really well. Hmm. You know, when I got on to do shorthand typing, God, that was a bloody waste of time. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even get past page four. But I tell you, a bit like talking, uh, counting how many people would be in front of me, or being able to cheat a little bit. Um, on how to get things out, I, 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 you do it to get through. And I, I think, uh, as I sort of say, I, I'm a great. I will persevere. I, I things don't sort of. Even then, I can remember as a child, I would start something and I would stay on it, on it until I finished. Even if I found it incredibly difficult, once I start, I don't give up. I go right through, and I'm bloody minded to do it. And um, so there's that. That's the other sort of side that, uh, yeah, I think again, because I was good at art and people would sort of say, Oh, we see, oh, we see Patty Pat over there. Oh, she's really good. And that gave me my whole self esteem. Mm. And I could also get out of classes because the teachers would want something drawn up or they want maybe a poster done. Mm. So I'd be the first one called out to do it. Um, so that's how I got my self esteem. Let's let's talk a bit about that because most people who I know who are talented at anything, quite often it does start sometimes with the teacher saying, "By the way, this is good," because I think that as children, certainly we we might appreciate when someone says that's good, pat on the head, and yeah. and, and and you know deep down that you just knock something out and had a go. But every now and again, and I, I've seen it from the other side now, I, I'm, I'm fortunate 
I teach a couple of really, really very talented students, one of whom I think is going to go all the way and become an author. I I genuinely think so. I mean, obviously I despise her because she's going to get published before I ever do, but that's not the point. Uh, I, I, when you see it from the other side and you look and, and it's just that extra, there's something about it. Do you remember a teacher ever sort of saying to you, that's really good. And I'm going to tell you why. And more than that, I'm going to try and encourage you to do better next time. I, I remember at primary school, like literally the first day, day a week. Uh, and I'd done a drawing that said, uh, drawing, and I can remember what it was of a, of a, a marriage, man and woman getting married, uh, bride and groom, and I did my drawing, and uh, the teacher sort of came over and took it from in front of me, and she uh, went over to the window and she called another teacher over to have a look at it, and they were both looking at it and, and doing it, and, and I thought, oh, gosh, and uh, they had got enjoyment out of it, hmm. and I, I, I thought that's really good, and I think... Uh, Mostly from the other, other children as well. Um, I, I took it for granted. Actually, I thought that mm. that yeah, it's something I was good at. I think we often take our skills for granted because they're just there, aren't they? But yeah. but still, it's um, it's an interesting environment to discover things in like that. Do you remember anything about what you just said about that you had a, a natural eye for? figures, geometry, I can imagine, given the kind of work that you do involving shape and mm. and sort of space, do you think that plays a big part in it? And do you think that that's sort of something that from an early age you could sort of see composition of objects and space? I'm using all the wrong terminology here, so forgive oh, I me. Think it's, it's what you said before, before, earlier about I'm feeling a wee bit overwhelmed of going to you know, an art gallery. Um, my father was a member of the Arts Club in Belfast. And uh, when my mum wanted to get rid of me on a Sunday, my father used to go up to the club and have a drink. And I can remember uh, there's always paintings there and there was always sculpture there. And being being introduced, it was something to aspire to. It was something really good to sort of be around good art. And my mum would always be able to buy a nice painting. I, I was really concerned about having a nice house. Uh, and things that were visually nice to look at, which I still like, and I think it's really, really good. Also, when she wanted to get rid of me, she sent me up to the Ulster Museum, and I can remember seeing a little, uh, cr- a little. I get thinking about it now; it's really pathetic. But it was a little girl falling asleep at a, a little fountain, and fairies were playing round her, and it was done in Carrara marble. And I must have been really young and I thought gosh when I grow up I'd love to be able to do something like that that is so beautiful <laughs> I remember looking at it and thinking oh that was lovely or just seeing statues around and things like that um, mm. um there were things of beauty to look at and busts um visually yeah now it, it's unlikely given what you said but did the school have much in the way of art provision were there any trips to see things or was it very much just stuff that was extracurricular as in you had to do it yourself you had to do it yourself really if i think uh art classes then was really you were just left an hour to play or 40 minutes i think it was then to play um there was a couple of pins it wasn't really encouraged and like like when i got into secondary school i decided that i it's what i really if anyone said to me, what are you going to do when you grow up? I'd say, I want to be an artist. Yeah, I'd be quite, uh, that's it. That's all there was to, to it. But when I got into secondary school and uh, realised that I wanted to go to art college, but that was out of the question. Uh, there was just no way I could. Uh, there was one teacher who did take an interest and she said she would help me um, get a portfolio together. And I remember her making an appointment with the headmistress and the headmistress says, I won't have any of that. I can't make any allowance for one child. And so there was no allowance done for it at all. So there was no way I could even get a portfolio together. As, as an adult now, looking back on that decision being made, do you think you have any insight as to what it would be? Was that the school being overwhelmed with other things that they felt were more important? What do you think it was? A, 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 it sounds, sounds like a strange thing to say. Do you think it was a jealousy thing? Or... No, I think that girls at that particular time came out, got pregnant, were mothers, or worked in the factory, or they were shorthand typists, and that was it. You didn't have any career prospects. That that just didn't come into the scenario. I've recently got in contact with someone who was my friend, and 
she wanted to be a teacher actually and and she went to see if she could get the the exams to go into university and she was turned down and her mum took her out of school the final year and put her in another school so she could get the exams to go into university and she she did turn out a special needs to she did turn into a teacher so this in a way was was about as much about societal expectations yeah. at the time as much yeah. as anything else which is yeah. which which now we think about it is just dreadful um, yes, that, that anyone could say something like that to dismiss out of hand someone's <laughs> dream or idea because that's not we don't do that here I, I remember a French teacher as, as well I I was I say I I must be a pain in the ass so I got totally excited about the weirdest things and when I knew I was going to learn French I got totally excited I thought this is the most brilliantest thing and I'm going to go to Paris and I'm going to live and do this that and the other thing it was just a dream come true so when we got the book I, I looked at it and I thought I'm going to write a book I couldn't even bloody write but I was going to write a book on French and I remember the teacher sort of coming in and within a couple of days no the penny had dropped but this wasn't going to be that much fun and uh, and the teacher stood up and said, I don't know why I'm teaching you all French. None of you will ever get there or go there or anything. I don't know what I'm doing here. And I just sort of remember thinking about this. She thought that all our expectations were stuck in Belfast and that was it. There wasn't going to be any other great ideals to look forward to or, 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 or to hope for in the future. I'd like to go back to her and tell her. I've been to Paris quite a few times. <laughs> I still can't speak French, though. <laughs> When did you decide sort of to, to branch out? Because obviously now you live in England. Uh, I, I, want, I wonder about that because I don't, I don't know the story of your career. Was that something you made as a very young woman or was that much later on? Oh, so I, I didn't go to art college until I was no, in my late 30s. Right, okay. Um, I sort of, uh, as I say, I was a bit of a pain. Um, I, I left Belfast quite early. Um, I think I was about 17 and um, I just, we just, because we just decided to leave and go to London. Um, no expectations. We were just going to have a fantastic time. It's all going to be brilliant. <laughs> it was good to, oh, you know, we we're going to go out and we're probably all going to get stoned all the time, get drunk. Yeah. <laughs> it was a bit like that, actually. <laughs> so you, you, were, you were living the art student lifestyle before you were officially an art student from the sounds of it. Yes, I suppose. So, yeah, I'm, yeah, just playing around. I think I came over to England. Um, I, I got uh, there was a, I went to an employment agency, and someone was very kind and got me a job in an advertising agency. And um, so I, I couldn't. I got a job as a typist. I was a shit typist. <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I look back on it. You know, someone dyslectic doing typing, but but again, I got in the accounts department, which again it was all right and. I think people were very kind to me. <laughs> 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 I don't know how it worked out, but it did work out all right. And then whenever I met uh, Steve, who had been through the whole art college thing, um, uh, he encouraged, or I, I sort of lift up a pencil one night and started to draw and find I could still draw after not drawing for about 16 years. And I thought, I'm going to go to art college now. And I went out on education classes and got in. And this is what... what what the dream had always been about, what I had always wanted to do. And it was an, and for Steve, it had, was the most normal thing to have done. He went to school, went to college, uh, went to art college. The, the people that we were hanging around with at that time, or I had met through Steve, had all been to art college. And they took it for granted. They didn't realise that it was for where I, where I came from. It had been really difficult, or the possibility of being totally remote. Mm. So I say... Again, uh, which is a bit sad, I did good adult education. I took a year out, and uh, Steve's career was starting to take off quite well. I think he'd had his first excuse me, film in production, and I took a year out and went to adult education classes, which I think, some, I was speaking to someone earlier, which has stopped. Uh, oh, which they've been a, stopped for, for a long time now, unfortunately. Yeah, which is a great shame. Um, because I, if I hadn't have done that, these were quite professional. They weren't sort of like hobbyists. Mm. Uh, there were other people about um, younger than me as well. There, it was complete. But when you went in there, if you were doing a life drawing class, you were doing five hours of life drawing. You know, quite serious life mm. drawing. Or, or I think I wanted to get into some other class, um, but I got in. There was only sculpting the figure available, which I hadn't even put my 
mind on and I applied for that and got didn't apply you just went in and hmm. and did it you paid your money or which wasn't very much either in fact I'm not even sure you had to pay for it well I was going to say I, I remember my dad telling me when he 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 was in um uh sort of you know mechanic stuff for a long time and then um decided to retrain as a social worker of all things <laughs> yeah. but, but he remembers back then adult continuing education uh and doing your diploma and things like that <clears throat> was was free there was a grant yeah. available for it now you'll pay the same amount you pay for an undergraduate course and it, it yeah we, we mentioned about how things have changed some of them for the better this is something that's changed very much for the worse in my opinion yeah. education has become um very 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 streamlined for some people yeah, uh, you know, and I, I do. Th- I, I've got, I've got friends that want to retrain. They've, they've hit a point of their life where they go, you know, I fancy doing something else, but I can't. I don't. I can't afford to. And that's, that's yeah. so because everybody has to have to have dreams. And mm-hmm. I, I was speaking to a friend this morning, and I think when I left school, it was almost supposed to be the norm that you got a job, but you also took night classes and something else you wanted to learn. Mm. It wasn't a hobby. It would be maybe if you wanted to learn how to speak French. Or I remember I did, uh, I, I took an English course and psychology mm. and learning to paint and draw. And then the sculpture course I took, uh, and that was ad- adult education at the City Lit mm. and the Islington Institute as well. It's just the, the, the thought of not, the thought of not being able to do something like that now is, I, I mean, I don't, I don't think about it as much as I should, but it, yeah, yeah, I think you're right. It is criminal. And, and you ask yourself, where is that saved money going? Um, I, I, I dread, I dread to think it's not going on anything that I would think is worthy. That's for sure. There's lots of people aren't academic. And I say, I was talking to my, my friend this morning and sort of saying about some people would should be going on to apprenticeships and learning things that are new and trying something new. Mm. Whereas what 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 our children? All right, you go to have a university degree, but what what, what subject and what use will it be? Whenever you can't get a bloody plumber or electrician or a good mm. bricklayer or or any of the building trades, building trades going through the roof, but you can't get any specialists to do it. And also and it, the strawberry involved with that as well. Well, this is this is, I think, the biggest problem. Maybe not just in this country; it does seem to be happening in the USA as well. Is that yeah. vocation, vocational courses have become sort of shorthand for that's what you do if you're not very clever, and that's not true no, because because cle- intelligence is so varied and mm. so different. Yeah, and I, I mean, for a start, I know that if I hadn't studied English at university, I probably wouldn't have gone to university because I didn't know what else I wanted to do. I didn't have any other skills. Uh, I don't know. Maybe I'd be doing something very different now. But it's like anything else. Sometimes it's the what? What was the phrase I heard? The privilege of choice. The fact that for some people, like myself, when I was it was normalized that you could go to university. I'm the, you know, my, my mum went because she, you know, but she was the first in her family to go. Uh, my dad never went because, you know, he, 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 that wasn't, that wasn't the expectation where he came from. And so because a lot of my friends and sort of other people in that area, we, we, because of just the, the time he went and, you know, it was last days of Blair, everyone was going to uni if they could afford it. And suddenly, Suddenly, that was it, and you, you look at it now, and it's become even even doing an undergraduate course is going to cost you nine grand a year, and a lot of young people. I can't look them in the eye. I've got a year thirteen class, and I can't look someone in the eye and say you should definitely do that. That's the best thing you could possibly yeah. do, especially not right now, <laughs> not in this current um, climate and what's going on. It feels it feels cool. wrong. Um, yeah, you know, like there there is a there should like I sort of say the all the building trades now are working at the moment. All right, but what's where's the encouragement to do an apprenticeship mm. to do a skill well? Um, yeah. it's really wrong, and I need it, yeah. And, and I, th- I, th- I, th- I think this is it as well. You know, we 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 are trying very hard to redress the balance right now between everything else that's happened with with COVID with, with any potential 
future hiccups and there will probably be more than a few with brexit and all of this stuff and i think i think what it's shown is that as a as a nation and maybe as an ideology more than anything else we've become very good at outsourcing but not very good at saying well what do we do next where's our sustainability how are we going to get the next generation of people to come in like right now they're once again there's going to be a teaching recruitment crisis coming up um but there's been one for the past 15 years that's what austerity will do and people you know it's 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 very easy to get doom and gloom and i i quite often do (laughs) well i think i think when again sort of like a I, although I'm saying not saying a lot of good things about the teachers that, that taught me, but teaching was something to aspire to. You know, it was, it was very well um, paired, um, but there was a lot of people then went into it that probably shouldn't have done. Um, but there was probably maybe in Northern Ireland, maybe more so than other places, and women that couldn't get a job, as I said, anywhere else. But um, Every job should be something you aspire to do. It doesn't matter what you are, because it's an enjoyment to do it, and you have to spend a lot of your time doing it. So if you could meet your 16-year-old self and through a, through a rip in time and space, if you could talk to them, if you could give them just a message in one way or another, what do you think you would say to them? I kept thinking about this question all morning and yesterday, and I kept going over it. And you know something? I'm not sure I'd say anything because a 16-year-old, I wouldn't listen anyway. Because <laughs> <laughs> I knew better. <laughs> I, I would say just don't worry, it'll be all right in the end. I don't know. I couldn't think of anything just that I would say. Because you just make your mistakes when you're 16, don't you? I think that's the thing, isn't it? And so many people have said said uh, have said a variation on what you've said of, well, I probably had some advice, but would I have listened? Probably not. And yeah. and it does say it does say it all really that being young is how did Larkin describe it? The strength and pain of being young. Mm. That it can't come again, but is for others undiminished somewhere. That idea of yeah, you you can you can fill someone's head with ideas, but ultimately they've got to go out and do it for themselves. And also, I, I, I remember talking to my grandson about, I think it was playing tennis, and he said he wanted to go do lessons. I said, well, you should do lessons. And I find the same t- thing with people when they're talking about life drawing, and they'll sort of say, well, I might go to some more, but I think I know it all now. And I think, no, you don't. <laughs> you don't know anything of it now. And maybe that's a lot. Just remember when you're 16 that you don't know anything at all. And whenever you're old, you still don't know anything either. I had a I had a sort of bonus question, which I did talk about with Stephen quite a lot, but I don't know if if this is your field, so feel free we can riff on it and do something else with it. Um, asking about was there anything uh, in the world of literature, or I, I guess it could be in the world of art, um, anything that you found it didn't have to be at school. It could just be something that you've always kept close to you since. It could be a poem, it might be a line from a play, it might even be a sculpture in your case, or or sort of, uh, or, or words from an artist that you particularly admire. Um, I, I can remember sort of once being working in the, the workshop years ago when uh, Richard Burton um, was, was um, reading Under Milk Wood, and I remember after all those years of absolutely hating poetry, and having difficult, well, I do read, and I, I'm a, I was an obsessive reader as well, even though as long as you didn't ask me questions on it, like the teacher did, and I'd get it wrong. But I remember sitting listening to Under Milk Wood and thinking, God, there's something in this poetry. It's so beautiful. Mm-hmm. And I wish that had been shown to me whenever I was at school. Instead of having the agony of counting how many people were before me, just actually having listened to it being, upset, being said beautifully. Yes, I mean, I, I'd love to be able to read poetry like Richard Burton, but sadly, very few of us have that have that ability. But I know what you mean. The, the spoken word changes so much about what's being said. I remember, I remember the first time I ever saw a Shakespeare play, and it and it was a it was a game changer. Up until then, I like most yeah. people, oh, saw this rubbish written years ago. Who cares? And then yeah. saw a production of Macbeth, and they had these flaming torches and it was it was dark i remember in the in some ruins somewhere in hampshire i forget what it was yeah. and bloody hell it was amazing and and i couldn't have told you half the time what they were saying or yeah. what it meant but all i know is that i was captivated 
exactly. And I think it's all about creativity, isn't it? That's important of the whole creativity of, of, of writing, of reading and the arts. Um, they are important and they do make your life a lot more fruitful from the experience of them. Those goosebump moments because yes. you can't you can't fake them. No, and I think that Richard Burton did that. I remember so, just hearing this voice go across the studio and, and having to sit down and thinking, bloody hell. So, so poetry can sound like this. Hmm. As you said, the same thing about Shakespeare. And and the same thing with with all all creative stuff. And there'll be people out there who tell you it's not it's not valuable or it's not as important or it doesn't make money. And and I think that those people can frankly go themselves. No, it's a matter of, it's almost like sitting down to a meal. You can either just sort of throw the food straight on the table and let us all eat like, like pigs, mm -hmm. or we can just make a bit of effort to make something look nice that we can sit down and enjoy together. That's a great analogy. I'm, 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 I'm going to use that one with your permission. <laughs> it's just, just like that. <laughs> but I'm going to say thank you very much for appearing on my pod. I've had a really good time talking to you and I, I hope that, I hope that you found this as in some ways cathartic, but also I hope that you've you've looked back on some things with with fondness as much as anything else. It's good. I have to admit, I, I did go over it and I had, last couple of days, I have been a little bit upset going back over what had happened in the past, but things happen and you move on. And I have been so incredibly lucky. There's not, I might have had a bad time to start with, but to say that old education classes, I, I was really, really lucky. And still am. <laughs> I'm sure there's also an element of the hard you work, the lucky you get in your exactly. case. Absolutely. Definitely. And that was my interview with Patricia Volk. Very, very interesting interview. And what a lovely and warm individual she was. If you want to find any of her artwork, please go to her website, which is patriciavolk.org. Very interesting. And what a very, very compelling story, of course, about her school days and how maybe gave her the perseverance that she needed to make it later on when people at school maybe could have helped her out a bit more. If you wish to support the pod, you can find me on Twitter at schooliespod or just search right in the schoolies. And that's the same for Instagram, right in the schoolies under the name Mr. James. Your homework is, of course, as ever, to give me some lovely reviews and some nice feedback. If you know of anybody who you think would want to be on our pod, be they well-known or lesser well-known, but you think that they have some good stories to tell, then get in touch on my social media. Class dismissed.